Good morning. In today's headlines, it took going to the brink, but the government avoids a partial shutdown with a weekend deal. A congressman vows to try to oust House Speaker McCarthy in its wake. California Governor Gavin Newsom appoints a new senator to replace Dianne Feinstein, who died last week at the age of 90. Former President Trump is in New York to appear in court for his civil fraud trial. We have details and analysis on the case. GOP 2024 candidates vie for position at California's Republican Party Fall Convention. Hear top policy goals from some of the state's contenders. Billions of dollars to spread disinformation from China. A recent report from the State Department found these efforts have expanded under China's top leader. We dig in. And Miss NTD 2023 has been crowned. A reporter spoke to the winner and the runners-up. Find out who took home the title. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Monday, October 2nd. Yes, Monday. I hope everyone had a great weekend. And we can all breathe a sigh of relief that Congress came together and avoided a shutdown. Yeah, and that also makes up our top news today, that the government passed a continuing resolution over the weekend. The House approved a 45-day funding bill on Saturday to avoid a government shutdown, like Kevin just mentioned. But political squabbling and threats of consequences continue. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the latest. Is laid on the table. The GOP-controlled House voted 335 to 91 to pass the stopgap funding bill. The Democrat-controlled Senate later approved the bill 88 to 9 in a bipartisan vote. The bill extends government funding at the current rate for 45 days until November 17th, while 2024 budget negotiations play out. President Biden signed the bill Saturday, calling it good news for the American people, but added, we should never have been in this position in the first place. Representative Matt Gates reacted to the news of the shutdown deal. The fact that we're reverting to the normal muscle memory of Washington to pass a continuing resolution is certainly disappointing. Gates said he will move to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week, speaking on CNN State of the Union. He accuses McCarthy of not keeping his budget promises and striking a secret deal with Democrats on Ukraine funding. So as he was baiting Republicans to vote for a continuing resolution without Ukraine money, saying that we were going to jam the Senate on Ukraine, he then turns around and makes a secret deal. McCarthy responded by saying, bring it on, talking on CBS's Face the Nation. He's more interested in securing TV interviews than doing something. According to McCarthy, Gates wanted to push the country into a showdown. Even threatening his own district with all the military people there who would not be paid. Representative Troy Nels is skeptical of any move to remove McCarthy. There is no one else. There's no one else. Kevin McCarthy's going to continue to be the speaker. Who is there? If you're going to identify a problem, come up with a solution to the problem. While Representative Tim Burchett says those in government are neglecting their duty. The same people uh, stay in power, the same lobbyists get greased, and because we all panic, and they're not panicking. Both parties. In another twist, some House Republicans are reportedly putting a motion together to expel Representative Matt Gates. That attempt hinges on whether an ethics committee report comes back with findings of guilt. 
The House Ethics Committee investigation into Gates commenced in 2021. The allegations include campaign finance violations and claims that the congressman took bribes and used drugs. Gates has forcibly denied such allegations. The congressman whose Twitter page describes him as Florida man built for battle responded to the motion to expel him with a meme. It shows Gates facing down a tight and thick circle of pistols pointed right at his head. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now we're going to dive into the funding bill passed over the weekend. We take a closer look at what's inside it. We're bringing in Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times, to give us the details. Good morning, Lawrence. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So what does the SIOPGAP funding bill include? Well, as you heard, it's a 45-day bill that extends government funding at the current rate. Now, that was a big sticking point for a lot of Republicans. You know that 90 of them voted against this bill. It also includes a disaster relief money, reauthorization of FAA funding, but it does not include, importantly, uh, support, additional support for Ukraine, which many in the Senate had wanted. It continues existing support, but nothing additional. Now, the president has asked for that, and the Senate had wanted to include that, but this bill does not provide additional money for Ukraine. Yes, and President Biden said that the U.S. will not walk away from Ukraine and is calling on Republicans for more support. Will Congress be able to get the appropriations process finished by November 17th? Well, <laughs> that right now is the uh, trillion-dollar question. Uh, they've been making progress on the House side. They've so far passed four appropriations bills. There are 12 required to fund the government. Now, the schedule that came out for this week from uh, Majority Leader Steve Scalise's office says that they're planning to vote on two more this week. So that would bring the total up to six or half. That would be well over 70, 75% of the total dollars needed to fund the government, but about half of the bills. So Speaker McCarthy promised they're gonna keep the heat on, they're gonna keep passing these bills and try to force the Senate to deal with whatever they come up with. So far, the Senate has not passed any of the 12 appropriations bills, but the House is making progress. So what can we expect between now and 45 days from now? Yeah, we can expect a lot more discussions about spending in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. The Senate is going to try to add their Ukraine package to the defense bill, probably maybe a separate appropriations bill. But between now and then, it's going to be a lot of debate, a lot of back and forth over uh, how much to spend on these various areas of government funding. 12 bills, roughly one for each of the 12 major departments of the government. A lot more spending fights to come. Do you see any critical roadblocks that might come up? Well, the, uh, the agriculture bill has been stalled in the House. Uh, some of the uh, Midwestern representatives objected to some provisions there on the Republican side. Of course, uh, you know, a lot of agriculture in the Midwest, especially ethanol, uh, production. So there's some things to work out there. Also, that's an F, uh, FDA approval bill. And so there'll be some debates about a provision to uh, ban mail order sales of mifepristone, which is an abortion agent. Uh, 
that'll be hotly debated if and when that is included in the uh, agriculture bill. Right. Well, it's a great update from you, Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. A Democratic congressman is facing investigation after pulling a fire alarm in the Capitol complex. This happened as his party was trying to delay a key vote. The alarm prompted the evacuation of a congressional office building. A photo released by the Capitol Police on Saturday showed Representative Jamal Bowman activating the fire alarm near a building exit. Bowman represents parts of New York City and its immediate suburbs. The congressman admitted to pulling the fire alarm, but disputes doing so to delay the vote. He says he activated the alarm thinking it would open the door as it wouldn't open. The House was about to vote on a bipartisan bill to keep the government open for 45 days and avoid a shutdown. Democrats were scrambling to buy time to read the bill, which Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had just unveiled. Some House Republicans have called for Bowman to resign. House Democrat Representative Dean Phillips is stepping down from his leadership position. That's after he voiced concerns about his party's support for President Biden's re-election bid. Phillips stated yesterday he felt it was appropriate to step aside from elected leadership. He said his convictions around next year's presidential race are incongruent with most of the Democratic caucus. The three-term Minnesota congressman has suggested a 2024 presidential bid himself. Phillips was the first Democrat to call on Senator Bob Menendez to resign after Menendez was indicted on corruption charges last month. He will stay in his congressional seat and remain a member of the Democratic caucus. California Governor Gavin Newsom has appointed a replacement to fill Dianne Feinstein's Senate. She passed away last week at the age of 90. Feinstein was the longest-serving woman in the Senate. California Governor Gavin Newsom will appoint LaFonza Butler to fill Feinstein's Senate. This according to a spokesperson for the governor yesterday. Butler is the president of Emily's List, an organization that helps to elect female Democratic candidates in favor of maintaining access to abortion. Prior to this, she was the director for public policy and campaigns at Airbnb. She also served as president of SEIU Local 2015 a union representing several hundred thousand care workers in California, and was the former director for the Board of Governors of the Los Angeles branch of the Federal Reserve System. Following her appointment, Butler will serve as senator until the November 2024 election. Following Feinstein's passing, she posted a tribute to Feinstein on social media, calling her a titan in the Senate and a legendary figure for women in politics and around the country. According to Newsom, his choice to appoint Butler amounts to an interim appointment, adding that he wouldn't appoint any of the candidates who had been running to succeed Feinstein in 2024, including representatives Adam Schiff, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee. But Butler will be free to run for the seat in 2024 if she chooses. It's currently unclear when she will be sworn into office. It could happen as early as Tuesday when the Senate goes back into session. Cost MNS? NTD News. Still to come, GOP 2024 contenders rallied at California's Republican Party Fall Convention over the weekend. We asked candidates from the state about their top policy goals. To debate or not to debate, according to a new poll, not debating has worked out pretty well for former President Trump. 
The Supreme Court is back from summer break. What important decisions lie ahead for them and the country? Find out in just a moment. Welcome back. GOP presidential candidates visited Anaheim for the California Republican Party Fall Convention over the weekend. Former President Trump, Senator Tim Scott, Governor Ron DeSantis, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy all made the trip to speak with and win over supporters. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the weekend event. A California Republican showdown played out over the weekend with primary rivals competing for a spot in voters' minds under the GOP frontrunner's shadow. California was once a symbol of American success today under the radical left fascists and Marxists that run your state. That's who's running your state. Bad people. It's becoming a symbol of our nation's decline. GOP candidates currently running for office shared their top policy goals with NTD. U.S. Senate candidate Eric Early says seeds of a Marxist form of dictatorship are starting to grow in the country. Day as U.S. Senator, I will do everything I can to fight against that, to fight for all the people, we the people in this country. And that goes across party lines, across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines. Mark Cargyle, U.S. House candidate for California's District 35, says if elected, he wants to take on issues that are hurting Americans, like high gas prices. A situation where our parents have to decide between food and fuel. And if they don't have fuel, they can't go to work. So they're having to make choices that should never be made in the most prosperous nation on the planet. The congressional candidate offered his diagnosis. Here's the truth. If you don't get your moral compass right, you're going to make bad economic decisions. Jason Zhang, candidate for California's 11th congressional district, Nancy Pelosi's district, says he's running to make sure those people that need help from the government actually get it. I will make sure you have the ability. We're making City College free for all San Franciscans, right? And we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to fight your way out of poverty. But we're not going to hand you a blank check. John Cruikshank, a candidate for L.A. County Supervisor, says he's running because things keep getting worse in the county and the current board is not solving the issues. So many of our friends have, and family have been leaving Los Angeles County and many of our businesses have been leaving and that's because the free market capitalism has been under assault by our current Board of Supervisors. Things like rent control, eviction moratoriums, minimum wages, these are all artificial things that do not work. They actually make it worse, not just for the people they're trying to attack, which are typically our businesses, but it, it makes it worse for the people that are on the lower income scale because of inflation. Inflation is something that we need to attack head on. And until we do that, we're going to see the misery of people continue to rise. We're going to see more homelessness. Crookshank says there would be no new tax increases, rent controls, or eviction bans under his watch. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And it seems doing nothing can sometimes be the best strategy. Former President Trump has added to his lead in the Republican presidential contest since not attending the last GOP debate. The digital media company Morning Consult says Trump's support among primary voters increased from 58% to 63%. That's in a survey conducted the day after the debate. In comparison, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis saw his support dip from 15% to 12% after the second debate, through the Florida gov though the Florida governor is still in second place. Trump spent debate night in Battleground, Michigan, delivering a speech to striking auto workers. 
Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley both lost two percentage points since the debate. Ramaswamy is at 7% and Haley at 5%. Former President Trump is set to appear at a New York court today. That's for a civil fraud trial accusing him and his family business of inflating property values and other assets on financial statements. Trump arrived in New York City last night and confirmed his in-person appearance on Truth Social. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's case. Former President Trump said on Truth Social Sunday, I'm going to court tomorrow morning to fight for my name and reputation. But law enforcement and court employees had already begun preparing for his possible appearance. New York State Judge Arthur Engerin ruled in a summary judgment last week that Trump, two of his adult sons, and the Trump Organization were liable for fraud. Engerin ruled Trump overstated his property values and canceled the state business licenses of several Trump entities. He's given defendants 30 days to recommend three independent reviewers to manage their dissolution. The 2024 presidential candidate called it a corporate death penalty and vowed to appeal the ruling. He told supporters in a fundraising email on Friday, after four sham arrests, indictments, and even a mugshot failed to break me, a Democrat judge is now trying to destroy my family business. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking $250 million in damages, a ban on Trump and his sons from running businesses in New York, and a five-year commercial real estate ban against Trump and the Trump Organization. Last week's ruling, if upheld on appeal, would force Trump to give up New York properties such as Trump Tower, a Wall Street office building, golf courses, and a suburban estate. Trump and the other defendants deny ever committing fraud. Monday's trial will deal with six other claims in James's lawsuit and starts at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And we'll have more analysis on Trump's civil fraud case in the second half of our program. Right now, Attorney General Merrick Garland said in an interview on Sunday that he would resign if asked by President Joe Biden to take action against Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump. But he doesn't think he'll be put in that position. Garland has spoken only sparingly about the cases and reiterated he would not get into specifics, but dismissed claims by Trump and his supporters that the cases were timed to ruin his chances to be president in 2024. He also insists there is no partisan considerations to affect the Justice Department's cases, including those involving Trump and Biden's son Hunter. Supreme Court members will take to the bench for the first time since late June starting today. This term promises to be an important one as a number of issues get discussed. For example, they have hundreds of appeals accumulated from the summer break that need rulings. The court will have a weighty decision regarding tech industry groups, arguing that laws restricting content moderation violate the First Amendment. There could also be 14th Amendment cases to decide that would keep former President Trump off the ballot in various states. And there are a few Second Amendment cases to be discussed, including one banning gun ownership by those convicted of domestic violence. And we're going to switch up gears now and bring you some of the latest headlines. And a warning, the following video may be disturbing to some of our viewers. Former federal prosecutor Patrick Scruggs was caught on video allegedly stabbing a man after a car crash. The incident occurred last Tuesday. Scruggs appears to threaten a good Samaritan who tried to intervene. He then allegedly went up to the car that hit him, broke the window, and stabbed the driver several times. He now faces felony charges in Florida of armed burglary, aggravated assault, and aggravated battery with a deadly weapon. 
At least 10 Cuban migrants died and 17 others were injured after the truck carrying them crashed. The accident happened along a stretch of highway in Mexico used by migrants on their way north to the United States. Mexico's National Migration Institute said the driver fled after the accident. The Michigan Supreme Court has voted to require judges and court personnel to use they pronouns if asked to. A justice who, occurred, who concurred with the rule change said the court is required to treat everyone with civility and respect. A dissenting justice raised concerns over freedom of speech and said the rule may also create confusion. Rules set by the state Supreme Court govern the practices of all lower courts in Michigan. The new rule allows for using other respectful, gender-neutral means of address. It takes effect January 1, 2024. A frantic search is underway for a missing New York nine-year-old girl. Charlotte Cena was camping with her family when she decided to go for a bike ride. She never returned. Police are searching for her using drones, boats, and an underwater rescue team. An Amber Alert has been issued and people are asked to contact police with any information. Well, I really do hope they find that young girl. Yeah, really. It's so dangerous nowadays for kids. Yeah. We're going to go into the break now. Billions of dollars to spread disinformation from China. A recent report from the State Department found these efforts have expanded under China's top leader. We speak to an expert to learn more. And Indonesia launches its first high-speed railway co-funded by China as part of the country's Belt and Road Initiative. Good to have you back. We're shifting our focus to China, where the regime spends billions of dollars to spread disinformation. The U.S. State Department published a report that found these efforts have expanded under China's Xi Jinping. The efforts are broad, and James Rubin, the special envoy at the GEC, says China is seeking information dominance in key regions of the world. So for more on this, we bring in Antonio Graceffo. He's a China analyst and author. Good morning. It's really good to have you, Antonio. Now, there is, the regime is seeking information dominance. How successful have they been in the U.S.? They've been extremely successful in uh, spaces like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. It was much worse at the beginning of the pandemic when China was really dominating the information space. Now, what about now after the pandemic? Well, now some of it is, is tailored off because I think that people are becoming aware of it and also that social media uh, companies have been scrubbing uh, fake accounts, troll accounts, bot accounts from China, but it, it continues. I mean, uh, anyone who writes about China knows that we get attacked all the time by Wu Mao, which are uh, basically paid Chinese uh, uh, trolls and and uh, bloggers, and uh, and then and the bot accounts as well, and it continues. Right, and because um, actually China always had an extensive propaganda efforts, right? So the report says though that she was the one that significantly expanded it. Can you tell me more about those developments there? Sure. Under Xi, the United Front Works Department, which is the propaganda, the foreign propaganda arm of uh, CCP, has been um, augmented. Uh, their activities have accelerated under Xi. So they are in other countries uh, doing, uh, dominating the information space, both online and then also physically by doing things like keeping tabs on dissenters and uh, people who speak out against the regime in foreign countries. 
So she has definitely expanded this as part of his control. He wants to dominate uh, uh, economically, militarily, uh, diplomatically, and then also in the information space. Right, and how exactly does that, because we, we just, you just touched on uh, social media, but the report also talks about an information ecosystem. Now, what does that exactly look like? Basically, you know, well, e even under she, they, they even produce um, videos and uh, documentaries and things like this that are, that look like news, or they are fake news, or they publish something under uh, the, the original post, like, like a news story, which is actually propaganda uh, made by the CCP, this will appear on some blog or website somewhere. They will then get semi-legitimate uh, journalists to cite that report. And in many cases, legitimate journalists have been uh, fooled into citing that as well. So now we have um, some statement by the CCP, which, is, which will appear in all the Google searches, it's in media, maybe even making its way into mainstream media, you know, the, the, the big media that people trust. And when you follow the story, you trace it to its origin, you find out that the original post is from some uh, random uh, 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 media that no one's ever heard of, you know, in Russia mm -hmm. or in China. Wow. Well, now that just raises the question, how well do you think American people, people that actually read those articles, to which extent do they understand the efforts of the regime and the propaganda that they might encounter in everyday life? The problem is that these articles very often are telling you things that you want to hear, depending upon whether you're on the left or the right of the American political spectrum. So China will write an article that supports a, a right-wing conspiracy theory or that supports a left-wing talking point. So then people from the left or the right will read that. It confirms what they already believed or wanted to believe, and it just strengthens their belief. Oh, wow. Well, and then what do you think the U.S. is doing? Or is the other uh, phrase differently, is the U.S. doing enough to counter those efforts that is coming from China? The U.S. is certainly taking steps. The issue is that under our system of freedoms, we don't want the government or some other authority deciding what is and isn't true and then removing accounts from the Internet because they said things that the government feels is untrue. So we want our, our freedoms protected. So it's very difficult for the government to intervene on this. And then the other option is that they can ask social media companies to police themselves, which they did. But under the previous ownership of, say, Twitter, we felt that there was too much censorship, um, particularly of, of conservative views. Now, under the new uh, 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 ownership of Twitter or new, new direction of Twitter, there is less censorship. Uh, but then that means that you're going to have more of these misinformation accounts that will go unchecked. Right, right. Well, very tough balance to strike there indeed. Thank you so much, Antonio Graceffo. I appreciate your insights today. Thank you for having me. And now we're going over to Indonesia, where Southeast Asia's first high-speed railway was inaugurated earlier today. The railway connects Jakarta with Bandung, the heavily populated capital of West Java province. China largely funded the project as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Indonesia's President Yoko Widodo said the high-speed railway will drastically reduce travel time between the two cities. The project hit several snags during its development, including delays and increasing costs, leading some to doubt its commercial benefits. The over $7 billion project was constructed in a joint venture between four state-owned Indonesian companies and China Railway International. 
Udodo took a 25-minute test ride on the 220-mile-per-hour train on September 13th. He told reporters he felt comfortable sitting or walking inside the bullet train, even at top speeds. For two weeks leading up to the inauguration, the project's sponsors ran a free-of-charge public trial. And now we are heading to Jane Wuerl in the UK for some short headlines from around the world. Morning, Evelyn and Kevin. Nine people died and around 50 were injured when the roof of a church collapsed in northern Mexico during a mass yesterday. Searchers probed the wreckage late into the night looking for survivors. Police said about 100 people were in the church at the time of the collapse. In Mercia, southeast Spain, at least 13 people were killed in a fire that spread through three nightclubs early on Sunday morning. Spanish media reported several of the dead were from a group celebrating a birthday. Police are investigating the cause of the blaze. The city mayor ordered three days of mourning for those who died. Turkey says airstrikes in northern Iraq yesterday neutralized many Kurdish militants. It comes hours after two attackers detonated a bomb near government buildings in Ankara. Outlawed Kurdish group PKK claimed responsibility for the attack. Both were killed and two police officers were wounded. Britain's biggest defence firm, BAE Systems, has won an almost $5 billion deal to build a new generation of attack submarines. It's part of the AUKUS plan between the US, Australia and Britain, which aims to provide Australia with submarines to help counter China in the Indo-Pacific. European Union's foreign ministers are meeting today in Kyiv, their first ever joint meeting outside EU borders. Foreign Policy Chief Josep Borrell said they aim to signal the bloc's unwavering support for Ukraine. It follows the election victory this weekend of Robert Fitzo, an EU member Slovakia, who will likely join Hungary in opposing EU military aid for Ukraine. Well, that's all from me. Back to you both. Thank you, Jane. Our hearts go out to the victims and their families in that Mexico church collapse. And in Spain, of course, for the fire. Yes. Well, if, you know, the European Commission's top digital affairs official said that um, Russia chose Slovakia as a target for its pro-war narratives. Right, yeah, and Robert Fizzo, he's saying that there's bigger things that Slovakia has to worry about, like their cost of living crisis and energy prices. But Yara Yorva, she makes that case that this is, this is a ground for where whether social media and misinformation can actually turn the tide in these elections. Right. Well, and heading to break now, tens of thousands of healthcare workers nearing the end of their contract. Will they be the next to stand on the picket line? NTD Business host Don Ma brings us more. Will the auto workers strikes be a boon to automakers looking to expand in right-to-work areas? We hear a perspective on how this might play out from an executive after the break. Welcome back. Let's get some updates on the potential health care workers strike. A coalition of eight unions representing 75,000 employees at healthcare company Kaiser Permanente said late Saturday that it has not reached an agreement with the company. Here to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, hi. There you are. Good morning. What can Good morning. you tell us? Tell us what this means. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, the fact that they have not reached an agreement with the company and the fact that the union's contract with Kaiser officially expired after 11.59 p.m. on Saturday, um, you know, all this sets the stage for potentially the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. Now, because the unions have workers at uh, hundreds of hospitals and medic medical offices across the country, it, it just makes the situation worse, right? Now that's, uh, that's including areas like California, Oregon, Colorado, Virginia, Washington, and Washington, D.C. So this strike could actually potentially happen this week on Wednesday. Uh, the coalition of Kaiser Permanente Union says it remains uh, far apart, actually, with the, with the company on important issues. And in a statement a few hours before the contract ran out, Kaiser Permanente said that uh, it's going to continue negotiating in good faith and that uh, operations will continue normally until the planned strike happens. Right. Now, so how likely is it that we will actually see a strike this Wednesday? Yeah, so, so the company said that contract uh, expirations uh, don't actually mean a strike will happen. Uh, the company is actually optimistic that they will reach an agreement to avoid a strike. So that's that's what the company says, right? But the coalition uh, unions say healthcare workers are actually prepared to negotiate throughout the week. Uh, but you know, despite that, uh, frontline workers are in fact preparing for a strike to begin on Wednesday. Now, what will the impacts be here if we do see a strike? Um, the healthcare uh, company Kaiser says that hospitals and emergency departments will stay open uh, and that the company has contingency plans in place to ensure members continue to receive safe, high quality care for the duration of the strike. So, you know, that's good. Um, but besides that, uh, actually, doctors, hospital managers, and registered nurses will not be taking part in the strike. Uh, those involved uh, are in the strike are nursing assistants, optometrists, pharmacists, x-ray and la laboratory technician, um, generic, uh, genetic counselors, and many others who support hospital operations. So, you know, it, it won't be that bad, but there will be some impacts for sure. Mm. Well, that's at least some reassurance there to know how many lives and health, um, health issues are at stake here. So anything else that you, can, you have for us today? Yeah, just one other thing. Uh, Costco actually announced their trade-in program, and it might be interesting to you. You can trade in your old electronics and receive a credit good for in-store or online purchases. You can trade in smartphones, tablets, uh, laptops, and gaming consoles. Um, so if you're interested in that, uh, here's how it works. First, uh, you got to go to their website uh, to their trade-up program. Um, then you find the item you want to trade in. Uh, you'll, you'll receive an offer based on condition and market value of the item. If you agree to the offer, you'll be able to print out a free shipping label. And after Costco receives and inspects your item, it's going to issue a Costco card for the agreed upon trade-in amount. Um, there are some restrictions though. Damaged or non-functional items won't be, won't be accepted. Some devices uh, may have particular trading requirements like minimum storage capacity. Um, so you got to check the website's criteria for your device before trying to trade in. Uh, that's it from me this morning, Evelyn. Hmm, certainly very useful tips. As usual, thank you, Don, host of Entity Business. Yeah, thank you, Evelyn. The United Auto Workers Union has expanded its strikes against Ford and GM. About 25,000 UAW workers were on strike as of Friday at noon, 
We're going to get some analysis on the White House's role in the strikes, as well as the impact they're having on the labor market as a whole and non-union automakers. Joining me now is Greg Murad, the VP of the National Right to Work Committee. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Thank you. What role has the Biden administration played in the United Auto Workers Union strikes? Well, unfortunately, the Biden administration has largely created the economic problems that led to these strikes. The Biden administration has been pushing an economic policy that has created massive inflation, uh, which is driving the need for cost of living adjustments much bigger than the automakers are used to, and therefore driving the uh, UAW's demands for bigger cost of living. Meanwhile, Joe Biden wants to call himself the most pro-union president in American history, but he's not pro-union, he's pro-union boss. And he, that's why he has no trouble wrecking union jobs while promoting more coercive power for union bosses like Sean Fain. Uh, in addition to the inflation issues, of course, all the, these uh, so-called uh, green cars and green car manufacturing that they've been incentivizing and pushing, whether the free market wants it or not, have also been costing union jobs and putting more pressure on UAW rank and file in that way. The UAW leadership, the bosses, then have to turn around and play like tough guys with the automakers so that they don't lose credibility with the rank and file for having endorsed Joe Biden in the first place. And meanwhile, President Trump was out there also talking to these auto workers and making his case for their vote. Now, inflation is obviously a very complex topic. It involves spending that was done during the pandemic era before Biden's time. And then there's obviously a lot of spending post-pandemic here now with the Inflation Reduction Act and things like that in the works. So there, there's a lot to discuss there. But I want to look at this strike. If this strike expands and causes the auto workers to have 25,000 workers on strike. How is it going to affect the labor market? Well, it's going to be a real problem in the labor market, for sure. Uh, as 25,000 people are no longer working full-time, they're subsisting on the union strike fund instead of income. That has a cascading effect through all the, all the regional economies. As they, they tighten their belts, they've got less to spend. Uh, that, that causes a problem in the whole economy. And the bigger it gets, the bigger a problem it is. And uh, frankly, it's a real, a real shows the problem of coercive unionism. And the unions have this ability to force these people on strike, whether they want to be or not. Uh, which points to the necessity of right-to-work laws. If you can quit your union and go back to work, uh, that's a good thing. And if the union has the ability to say, no, you're stuck with us and we're your bargaining agent and you're going to pay us for that so-called representation, uh, they then have a lot more coercive power in the marketplace, and that's a bad thing. Speaking of right-to-work laws, the AFL-CIO says that it tilts the balance towards big corporations and it makes it harder to form unions and collectively bargain for better wages. So what's your reaction to this? Oh, well, that it's absolute nonsense, of course. It doesn't make it any harder to form a union. What it does is make unionism voluntary. So it might make it harder for the AFL-CIO goons to force a union where one is not wanted, but where the workforce wants a union, it's just as easy as it's ever been. The problem is that for the unions that it gives the rank-and-file workers the ability to choose whether or not they think that were that, that representation is serving their interest. If the, UAW, if the UAW or any union is pushing uh, policies that reward one type of worker and hurt another, the workers that are being hurt shouldn't have to pay for a contract that is working against their interests. And if this UAW strike does expand further, what do we expect to see from competitors that are non-union automakers? I suspect that they're going to uh, be able to expand their operations and we're going to see even more of a, a, a tendency for new auto plants and expansions of auto plants to happen in right-to-work environments where it's harder for unions to call this kind of strike because they can't have the same kind of 
uh, uh, rank obedience that they are used to getting uh, in places that have forced unionism. Well, Greg Barada, it was great hearing your analysis. VP of the National Right to Work Committee, thank you. Happy to be with you. Thanks. Just ahead, are kids getting physically addicted to their phones? We speak to a health expert to find out more about why kids are spending more and more time on their phones. And Miss NTD 2023 has been crowned. Find out which of 32 candidates brought home the title and a cash prize of $10,000. Our reporter spoke to the winner. Welcome back. Kids are spending more and more time glued to their screens. They're spending so much time on their phones, it's taking a toll on their social development. I spoke to Dr. Vince Callahan, a mental health expert, to learn how parents can help their kids overcome their addiction. Joining me now is Dr. Vince Callahan. He is a researcher, educator, and mental health expert. Good morning, doctor. It's really good to have you. Now, a new study from University of Georgia found that people actually expect more enjoyment from interacting with real people, but they still choose to be on their phones. Now, I want to know from you, could you please explain why that is? Well, first of all, when you're on your phone a lot, um, you get a dopamine rush. Um, that's the feel good. So when you have a sense of achievement or you do something that you like, you get this dopamine rush and people get addicted to the dopamine rush more so than anything else. So it actually becomes an addiction to be on that screen. The average teenager right now is on their screen four to six hours a day. And if you try and take it away from them, they'll give you an adverse reaction just like a drug addict would because they're taking the drug away. Wow, that's incredible. Now, um, let's get to the actual effects that too much screen time could have on people's mental health and maybe even general well-being. How could this um, harm or how would this affect people? Well, what you see when you're, when you're on the screen so much, you see a decrease in problem-solving skills, communication skills, and social skills. So even though you're on social media, you're actually diminishing what skills you need to navigate life. So think about this if you're a teenager, especially if you're not accepted or part of the in-group, and now you get on the phone and you get cyberbullied or you're, you're not popular on the phone, now that's like a double negative coming at you. So it affects the self-esteem and sense of self-worth. Um, and again, it's the whole addictive behavior. And parents have given over their, it seems like they've given over their right to parent. It's almost like we've given an electronic pacifier or we, we're doing e-parenting with, with the kids. And kids need to attach. They need to bond. That's why that study doesn't surprise me out of the University of Georgia, because people would rather talk to a stranger than talk to no one. People are not meant to do life alone. They, they need to connect with people, even if it's a stranger, you've got more of a, a stronger release of hormone, which is oxytocin, when you bond with somebody. Oxytocin is stronger than dopamine, and the two together are amazing, but I would rather connect with somebody than I would just sit on my screen. Right. Now, can you please explain and or expand on oxytocin? How exactly does socializing um, affect mental health? 
Sure. So we, we have about 40 different neurotransmitters, and based on whatever stimuli is coming at us, our brain creates those neurotransmitters. Oxytocin is the one that when you get a hug or when you connect with somebody, that's that feel good, that kind of a, a sense of a glow. You, you just connect with somebody. And that is stronger, actually, than dopamine, which is the pleasure sensor when I do something right. So when we have oxytocin going on, we actually feel pretty good about ourselves, which is why I say to parents, if you, if you want to change the entire culture of your family, take one hour a week, 15 minutes, four days, one hour a week, turn the screens off, be a family, connect and attach. And guess what? You'll change the entire culture of your family just in one simple hour. Mm. Very interesting. Thank you so much for your insights today, Dr. Vince Callahan. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I really like that one hour a week idea he has. It's really not that much, right? I mean, we have been revisiting this topic so many times. It, right now, it really just looks like it's up to the individual, right, to the parent to do something. If that doesn't work, try the next thing, try the next thing, until one of them hopefully sticks. Yeah, moderation is key. And you know, yeah. social media, it's really powerful, and it can be used for good if it's done right. I mean, for example, boosting your content, let's say, for example, for a news anchor, you know, on Facebook. But at the same time, sometimes just one phone call from a friend can equal, you know, 100 just quick messages on exactly. Facebook. Exactly. There is that, you need to distinguish the different motives behind it, right? There's also this, that's why I think some people say social media literacy, for people just scroll, scrolling through to understand that sometimes it's a commercial interest behind it, not necessarily the interest for the individual person that's looking at it right now. Ah, yeah, my yeah. friend just said, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has found a way to take your time and turn it into his money. So you got to keep that in mind. There you go. All right, moving on, because Entity has successfully concluded its first Miss Entity beauty pageant. 32 young women won the hearts of audience members and judges over the weekend, but only one was crowned Miss NTD. Our reporter Arlene Richards spoke to the winner and the runners-up. At NTD's global Chinese beauty pageant on Saturday night, the big moment that all have been waiting for. The winner of Miss NTD 2023 is... Number 11, Cynthia Sun. Sun brings home a $10,000 cash prize, a set of 18 karat jewelry and a critical mission. As a human rights and diplomacy researcher, she heard many accounts of women being persecuted for their faith. My goal is to uphold their universal rights through government advocacy and awareness campaigns. Why host a beauty pageant now? The event aims to drive a return to pure beauty, one that's inseparable from inner values. So contestants were judged on both appearance and the five virtues of morality, righteousness, propriety, benevolence, and faithfulness. What I love about this beauty pageant is that NTD focused on traditional women values and Chinese values, which I think is so important. Contestants presented a number of performances from classical Chinese dance, flute, and the arhu, a classical Chinese instrument. Following a demonstration of grace in evening gowns, top finalists shared their understanding of true beauty. I believe that the sincere act of putting others first will allow the goodness that people will recognize as beauty shine forth in a person. 
Third runner-up, Fiona G, shared what impact she would bring to the world. I am a scholar of languages because I wish to use my skills to share the beauty of true traditional Chinese culture with the hearts of the world's people. Thank you, everyone. First runner-up, Vicky Zhao, also won the Best Dancer Award, while the Best in Fitness Award went to Bell Meng, the second runner-up. NTD's Global Chinese Beauty Pageant has come to a successful close. Our winner will now travel the world promoting traditional values and inspiring others. Reporting from Purchase, New York, Arlene Richards, NTD News. What a night, what a night. And it was such a celebration backstage. I was lucky enough to have a look there. And um, it seemed like they had so much support for each other. It was really heartwarming, really. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it just seems like such a rigorous selection process. Yeah, it was, it was. She did very well. Congratulations, Cynthia. And it looks like right now we are beginning our second part of the broadcast. Accusations of a secret deal vows to oust House members from office. The government passes a bill to avert a partial shutdown, but the political intrigue could just be getting started. Former President Trump is in New York City today. He's expected to appear in court for the start of his civil trial. We speak to a lawyer to find out more. Former President Jimmy Carter turns 99 and the White House honors him with a gigantic red, white and blue cake. We have the story. Shark versus Stingrays. No, it's not a gang story from a movie. Stay with us for some intense drone footage. Welcome back, and to all joining us now, good morning. Good morning. Also from me again, our top news today, the government passed a continuing resolution over the weekend. The House approved a 45-day funding bill on Saturday to avoid a government shutdown, but political squabbling and threats of consequences continue. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the latest. It's laid on the table. The GOP-controlled House voted 335 to 91 to pass the stopgap funding bill. The Democrat-controlled Senate later approved the bill 88 to 9 in a bipartisan vote. The bill extends government funding at the current rate for 45 days until November 17th, while 2024 budget negotiations play out. President Biden signed the bill Saturday, calling it good news for the American people. Gates said he will move to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week, speaking on CNN's State of the Union. He accuses McCarthy of not keeping his budget promises and striking a secret deal with Democrats on Ukraine funding. McCarthy responded by saying, bring it on, talking on CBS's Face the Nation. He's more interested in securing TV interviews than doing something. According to McCarthy, Gates wanted to push the country into a showdown even threatening his own district with all the military people there who would not be paid. Representative Troy Nels is skeptical of any move to remove McCarthy. There is no one else. There's no one else. Kevin McCarthy's going to continue to be the speaker. Who is there? If you're going to identify a problem, come up with a solution to the problem. In another twist, some House Republicans are reportedly putting a motion together to expel Representative Matt Gates. 
That attempt hinges on whether an Ethics Committee report comes back with findings of guilt. The House Ethics Committee investigation into Gates commenced in 2021. The allegations include campaign finance violations and claims that the congressman took bribes and used drugs. Gates has forcibly denied such allegations. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former President Trump is set to appear at a New York court today. That's for a civil fraud trial accusing him and his family business of inflating property values and other assets on financial statements. Trump arrived in New York City last night and confirmed his in-person appearance on Truth Social. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's case. Former President Trump said on Truth Social Sunday, I'm going to court tomorrow morning to fight for my name and reputation. But law enforcement and court employees had already begun preparing for his possible appearance. New York State Judge Arthur Engerin ruled in a summary judgment last week that Trump, two of his adult sons, and the Trump Organization were liable for fraud. Engerin ruled Trump overstated his property values and canceled the state business licenses of several Trump entities. He's given defendants 30 days to recommend three independent reviewers to manage their dissolution. The 2024 presidential candidate called it a corporate death penalty and vowed to appeal the ruling. He told supporters in a fundraising email on Friday, after four sham arrests, indictments, and even a mugshot failed to break me, a Democrat judge is now trying to destroy my family business. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking $250 million in damages, a ban on Trump and his sons from running businesses in New York, and a five-year commercial real estate ban against Trump and the Trump Organization. Last week's ruling, if upheld on appeal, would force Trump to give up New York properties such as Trump Tower, a Wall Street office building, golf courses, and a suburban estate. Trump and the other defendants deny ever committing fraud. Monday's trial will deal with six other claims in James's lawsuit and starts at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Let's get a legal breakdown of the fraud case against Trump and what to expect at the trial today. William Jacobson, a lawyer and professor at Cornell Law School, joins us live. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. We know opening statements are expected here, so what do you think is going to happen at the trial that starts today? Well, that's a little unclear because the judge has really ruled on the liability aspect of the case. That was the uh, decision referenced in your intro to, to this. So it's not really clear what's left. I guess they're going to rehash the same evidence, rehash the same fraud allegations, and the judge is supposed to come up with some sort of penalties to assess here. So this is really the damages phase. The liability phase was already determined by the judge. Some of that decision that the judge Aaron Gorin made was based on this false and misleading square footage for some of Trump's properties there. Do you expect that there's going to be anything that Trump's going to be able to present that'll exonerate him? Well, it's really too late for him in this trial to exonerate himself. That's been ruled on. He's been found essentially guilty, his entity's guilty of committing pervasive or I should say repetitive fraud with regard to loan applications and insurance applications. So for the purpose of this trial, that's off. Of course, for appeal, that's still an open basis because the judge determined it based on summary judgment without really allowing Trump to present live evidence. So that will be an issue for appeal. And of course, an appeals court has already rejected Trump's request to delay the trial. So what do you think will happen here on appeal? 
Well, I think that the judge's rulings are, you know, suspect in the procedural way in which they happened, that the judge decided it based on the papers. The judge decided essentially the credibility of Trump's counter arguments and the credibility of his own appraisal arguments without hearing the testimony. And I think that's a weakness that could cause this to be overturned. Whether it will, of course, is to be determined. But it was highly unusual and took everybody by surprise that the judge just ruled based on the papers. And now this move actually severely restricts Trump's ability to do business in New York. Do you think that there's a possibility that he will lose all of his properties? I think that's a possibility. That would be, I think, uh, really uh, not a proper remedy here. I mean, remember, his entities are not accused themselves of being fraudulent organizations. His entities are alleged to have overstated valuations, which he disputes. So I think to destroy those businesses and to force him to sell properties based on a relatively narrow scope of fraud, I think would be inappropriate and improper. And in fact, in many ways, uh, frightening for our society that if you're found to have inflated a, uh, a property estimate or property valuation, you could not only be assessed penalties, that might be appropriate penalties, but you could actually lose control of buildings and your businesses that you've built up over several decades. I hope that doesn't hold up on appeal because that would be, a, a, to me, an abuse of prosecutorial power. William Jacobson, law professor at Cornell, thank you for your time. Great, thank you. California Governor Gavin Newsom has appointed a replacement to fill Dianne Feinstein's Senate. She passed away last week at the age of 90 and was the longest serving woman in the Senate. Governor Newsom will appoint LaFonda Butler to take Feinstein's seat. Butler is the president of Emily's List, an organization that helps to elect female Democratic candidates in favor of maintaining access to abortion. She also served as president of the SEIU Local 2015, a union representing several hundred thousand care workers in California. Butler will serve as senator until the November 2024 election. Newsom says his choice to appoint Butler amounts to an interim appointment and that he wouldn't appoint any of the candidates who've been running to succeed Feinstein in 2024. Butler could be sworn in as early as tomorrow when the Senate goes back into session. Stay with us as former President Jimmy Carter has turned 99. See what the White House did in his honor when we come back. It's good to have you back with us. Can inflation be tamed without straining the economy? Fed Chair Jerome Powell says yes. We hear his reasoning in a quick recap of what's become of monetary policy over the last decade. Take a look. Please welcome Jeffrey Tucker, a columnist for the Epic Times and founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. It's great to have you with us this morning, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that they can add pressure on financial conditions to battle inflation, and it won't hurt the economy too much because he cites a solid economy and strong job growth. What's your reaction to this? They've been wrong on everything for years now, actually, and they're, he's wrong on this one, too. Uh, we're seeing the impact of these high interest rates on the city commercial real estate markets, on the housing market, markets, on, on everything, on family finances, on government finances. 
And there's so many signs of recession, but I would clarify, I don't really believe we ever left recession of 2020. Other than that, all the growth has been statistical and largely driven by government spending and also debt. So I, I, I think probably the idea that we're going to avoid a downturn is sort of a moot point. I think we're in a downturn and we've never left being in a downturn from March uh, 2020. So, Jeffrey, in your view, what needs to be done to tame inflation while keeping the economy intact? Unfortunately, I don't think there's anything we can do other than allow the $6.5 trillion they printed between 2021 and, and 22 to become endemic in our economic structures. I mean, they, they did the damage, and it's just, it's just done. These high interest rates are not actually working to tamp down inflation. I find that fascinating. I don't know how long it's going to go on, but we're already seeing the Federal Reserve revise its targets from uh, 2% to 2.5% and acquiescing to the new reality. The prices are never going to go back to the 2019 uh, levels. Uh, we're, we're faced with, I would say, a long-term inflationary problem. And this is all the fault of the, of the Fed. I, it, it is wrong to trust the institution that caused the problems to dig us out of it. I just don't believe that's going to happen. So you talk about this long-term trend. In your op-ed, you wrote that there was a 3,000% inflation over the last 110 years, bringing the value of the dollar just down to about three cents. So what's causing mm -hmm. this and how to get out of this cycle? Uh, the U.S. didn't always have a central bank. We only got one in, two, uh, in um, 1913. And part of the mission of the Federal Reserve, if you can believe it, was to uh, control inflation. They had very strict capital requirements on banks that were members of the system. Uh, it didn't work. I mean, within the first 10 years of the Fed existence, Fed's existence, the dollar had fallen by half its value. And we've seen one crisis after another, whether it was, uh, you know, the, if, uh, the, the Great Depression and then, uh, and then uh, the 1970s inflation and now this one. Those are the three worst uh, cases. So, yeah, the dollar has lost uh, about 97% of its value or 3,000% inflation rate over 110 years. So, I mean, my view is that the central bank has, you know, utterly and completely failed, mostly because it's been so acquiescent to government priorities. Every time they, uh, I mean, basically the, the federal government is the reason for the Fed's existence. So the Fed is always having to pay back its benefactors in the event of a crisis. And there's always another crisis and the Fed is always there. So they're playing this reactionary role here, I see. Jeffrey Tucker, Epic Times yeah. senior columnist and founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, thank you. It's such a pleasure, thank you. And a huge cake was displayed on the White House lawn to honor former President Jimmy Carter's 99th birthday. The huge red, white, and blue cake was decorated with 39 candles as a nod to Carter being the 39th president. It's probably hard to get 99 candles on there, President Carter and his wife, Rosalind, have been living together in hospice care for the past several months. That's a nice gesture, though. Yeah. And, you know, Evelyn, they're the longest married first couple. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cute. That's very beautiful. All right. And cultivating an old-fashioned life and returning to what truly matters. More and more people are finding themselves on the path to a traditional lifestyle. One Wyoming family decided to cut out screen time for a whole for a while to see what happens, and the results were truly astounding. Take a look. Good morning, guys. Jill Winger and her family live on a 67-acre homestead in Wyoming. In December last year, the family decided to go on a TV fast, initially for three months, just to see what would happen. 
realized we were just leaning towards TV as a default activity more than we would have liked. You know, our, our winters are long and dark here. And so every night after supper, we'd end up turning on the TV. And my husband and I started to wonder, you know, what better activities are being displaced by the TV watching? It's not that TV is always bad, but we're like, we could be doing other things. We could be creating, we could be learning. And so we decided just to stop it completely. What happened next was really surprising to them. Instead of missing the TV or feeling bored, the family rediscovered activities they could engage in together. I think our first activity is we just started reading more. Uh, and we made it this, this little routine where we would light lanterns just for fun in the evenings after supper. <clears throat> and we'd make tea or have you know a snack or a cookie. And everyone would get a book and we just would sit in the living room and read. And it we just really began to enjoy that initially. And I, I was getting through books faster, books that I didn't think I had time for, and the kids were reading more. The family also started playing more board games and engaged in learning new hobbies. Jill's husband, Christian, took up leather crafting, and their children, Messa, Bridger, and Sage, learned to braid leather. We have a shop outside, uh, and so my husband would end up going out to the shop some nights, and they, my, him and my son and my daughters would start to work on leather projects. My daughter started to um, pick up braiding rawhide and unrope. The children also started cooking more and became more engaged in homesteading activities. After completing the initial three-month period without TV, the family was so blown away by the results, they decided to continue. I think we as a family, especially the children, became so much more engaged in the world around us. And we, we really loved what we were seeing as a result. Um, now, you know, fast forward to today, our initial three-month fast is over. We still have not resubscribed to our uh, subscription streaming programs. They are still off. We now watch maybe a documentary or a movie as a family once or twice a month, but we have not gone back to our old routine and none of us miss it. Jill has shared their experience on social media. A lot of people have shown her support, but not all comments were positive. There was a number of negative comments, more than I would have expected. Uh, it took me off guard a little bit, especially since when I posted the video, it wasn't a prescription for anyone. It was just, hey, here's what we did and here's what worked for us. And I think initially people responded negatively, probably because it made them feel uh, questioning about their own choices. You know, sometimes when people feel like maybe someone's attacking them, even accidentally, that people get defensive. But regardless, Jill is amazed by the success the family's decision has brought them. I think the, the biggest difference without the TV is we feel like we have more time which it might seem obvious and simple, but you know, as, as modern people, it, we always feel busy, we always feel stressed, we always feel maxed out. And I, I think, and I'm speaking to myself sometimes, you know, often I think we get those feelings because every spare minute we're filling with a TV show or our phone scrolling or something that is an input from other people. Jill and her family don't have an end date for their TV fast. For now, they feel closer than ever spending quality time together. And Jill is enjoying watching her kids grow and thrive. To be honest, that looks so much more fun. Yeah, it is a cool story. Yeah, well, and you know, it's in moderation, I think, because you still got to be informed. So on your TV fast, maybe you don't watch NTD News, but you can still read the Epic Times newspaper. <laughs> That's right. And then we're going to go to some fun headlines for the day here. Florida's famous reptile now has a name and one that country music legend Dolly Parton would approve of. One of the names that kind of rung really clear with us and, and grew on us was uh, a takeoff of one of Dolly's famous songs. Yep. So we're going to name this little gator Jolene.
The name is a nod to Parton's famous 1973 song, Jolene, and it was chosen from a list of names submitted to Gatorland. Little Jolene went viral after she was found wandering in central Florida with the top half of her, its jaw missing. Gatorland later took her in, and she continues to receive treatment in isolation. Park officials may provide the gator with a prosthetic for her upper jaw after her health improves and she becomes more comfortable at the park. Jay, tag, you're it. Drone footage shows a single shark chasing hundreds of stingray. This was off the coast of Anna Maria Island, Florida. Drone operator Justin Nadeau was making videos of sea life and publishing them to his vlog. He originally went to the island to film dolphins and sharks, but his jaw dropped when he saw hundreds of stingrays instead. His videos already racked up over a million views. Wow, what a video. Yeah, what if sharks in reality just want to play tag? They don't want to eat you, just want to play a little bit. Oh man, I wonder what inspired that idea. He just, he just put up the drone and said, all right, we're, we're going to capture this for everyone yeah, to see. It's beautiful though. Yeah. All right, and we have reached the end of today's program. We'd love to hear from you, as always, at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email with your feedback or anything else you'd like, to, you'd like us to know. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.